How does God act in history? What does it mean to be born again? And how might we as Christians understand and speak, especially Episcopalians, of the power of the cross? This is the time of year when that will come up. So I want to say some things uh, about that. All the readings have something to do with all this. God acting in human history. What does it mean to be born again? And what is, uh, how do we understand the power of the cross? And what are some ways to see uh, why we still insist, at least I do, that it's central to our self-understanding as Christian people? This is the second Sunday in Lent. And remember that the overarching themes throughout the whole of the 40 days of Lent have to do with repentance, reconciliation, and clean motives. And in some way, these issues impinge on those major themes. But we read in the biblical witness uh, about some of the great stories that animate our understanding about who we are and how we think about God and Jesus and so on and so on. So God and human history. Genesis today, we read uh, about Abram, who was going to become Abraham. And he doesn't have much to say. It's a very short reading. In fact, he's not doing much. He's just sitting there listening. And God tells him what he wants him to do, which is that he wants him to leave his, uh, his country. He wants to pull up stakes, take all of his family and everybody with him. Lot is mentioned here. Lot goes with him. And uh, that he's going to follow him. And if he does this, he's going to be uh, a father of all the nations. So Abram does it. The Hebrew Bible is full of puns and word plays. So Abram is going to become Abraham. Abram, exalted father. Abraham, father of many nations. It sounds very similar, though, in the Hebrew text. So it's full of stuff like that. So names get changed. Sarai gets set to be Sarah and all of those kinds of things. You know, one of the famous ones is the angels come to the oak at Mamre to see uh, Abraham and Sarah. She's 75. And they say, you're going to have a baby. She, she hasn't had a baby. Uh, her servant girl had the baby. But she's going to have a baby. And she said, well, that's, I'm 75 years old. She laughs and one of the angels looks at her and said why are you laughing <laughs> so uh, a few months some the usual number of months later along comes it says she laughed in the Hebrew text so when the baby is born Isaac Isaac means God laughed in the Hebrew Bible. So there's all that going on in there. So I guess reading the Hebrew, you kind of get a little chuckle out of this. I remember looking at, uh, in seminary, when we would be at Evensong or morning prayer and the Eucharist, all the faculty sat in the back of the choir this way, and we sat this way, you know, monastic style. So they would all sit there, and a lot of them would follow the readings 
you know, from the, either in the Greek New Testament or in the Hebrew Bible. And they would sit there uh, reading this along while the, the seminarian was reading the thing. And every once in a while, you'd see one of the professors nudge the other guy and go like this. <laughs> so I know, I know that they thought, boy, this is a lollapalooza of a translation or something like that. You know, they'd pour, there'd be this smile that would come on their face, you know. Some of the Bible, the, uh, the professors would just walk into the class with the, the, the Greek New Testament, they wouldn't have an English Bible, and they would, if they were going to read a pick, they'd open it up and make a simultaneous translation from the Greek. They'd just read it in English from the Greek, uh, you know. And it was uh, kind of interesting in that sense, way off the subject. So the great question is, Abraham just goes, or Abram, he just goes and does it through faith. He would have used the word immuna, which means trust. And when you think about faith, that's what it means in one sense. It means trust and obedience. And that's a hard thing for us in our own day and age. Maybe in every day and age it's been that way. But he goes and does this. And Paul is going to take this up in Romans. Nine o'clock on a Sunday morning, you're all sitting there. And we're listening. Dan, who read today the, the second lesson? It was very good. And it... it it's complicated, and I'm thinking, here I'm sitting here, and I've had, and I'm listening to this one. What is he driving? <laughs> you know, what is, what is all this? Go, you know, it's a long thing. Well, here's what Paul is trying to say. The story is about how uh, God's purposes are for everybody, and Abraham becomes a father of many nations, not just the people of the covenant. And he does this before he has observed any of the religious cult, any of the proscriptions now that will become part of the Jewish law. And Paul says he is an instrument of God's purposes, and it is his faith that has produced this. His faith has produced now the fact that we are all children of Abraham, and that the point I'm trying to make to the Roman church is that not only are the people of the covenant part of the plan of God and part of God's saved people, everybody is because Abraham, as it says in today's reading, is the father of everybody. He's the great patriarch. So all the nations, even those who do not observe the law, are part of this group and are to be welcomed in. And every time we, through faith, practice this kind of inclusivity, we are being faithful to God's saving work in our lives, both personally and corporately. So the great question is, is that when you hear the language about God intervening in human history and that God's plan now is being seen, how have Christians understood that over time? Well... I think we've maybe, for, for good reason in some ways, uh, have, have thought that God intervenes in human history by interrupting the usual processes of cause and effect. Right? I'm not prepared to say that that never has happened or never will happened, happen. But the fact is that it is not maybe the best way to do that. 
because I have you ever stopped to think about this? I started thinking about this harder when I was in seminary than at any other time. I don't know why, but I always thought I always thought you know how is it we read in the Bible and we listen to everybody that all this stuff was happening in the Old Testament and in the, all these things were going on. And then there was this time when all these cause and effect gets interrupted continuously by supernatural interventions and all this, and here we are now, it just isn't going on. One of the ways somebody might describe that is, well, that's because you don't believe enough. I suspect things now are pretty much as they have always been, Right? So how are we to make sense of the biblical witness when it speaks about these acts of God? It was very popular when I, back in the early 70s to describe the Bible as uh, the book of the acts of God, right? Well, the way in which you can do that is to begin to see that God chooses people and people respond to the divine initiative when in history and become the channels of God's grace and work in the world to fulfill God's purposes. So to, to assume that something from outside is going to now come in here and we're going to have all this happen in some sort of twilight zone way is probably not the best way to think about God's work in the world. Don't you think it would be easier to assume that God works on our manners, morals, and customs in terms of the way in which we get along as a people. The big story about that in Genesis is Abraham and Isaac. He's taken that boy up to the mountain and he's going to kill him. His, his only son. And he's doing it to fulfill the religious cult of his people. We've dug up a whole bunch of nine-year-old little boys in the ancient Near East in, in the area where he's from. So we know that this is what they were doing. So here's Abraham coming back down the mountain with Isaac. And all of his friends say, well, geez, Abraham, I see you. You have Isaac here. <laughs> he said, yes, I do. He said, well, you know, most of all of us, we, we, had, we sacrificed our firstborn son. You know, if you don't do this, the crops aren't going to come up. The sheep will drop the lambs. We're going to be in a very bad situation here. He said, I believe that it, it makes no sense. I'm, I'm making this conversation up, of course. It makes no sense to do this. Why do we believe in a God that we've trusted all this time who's going to require us to kill our children? This is not something that makes sense. And we know that if we date Abraham or Abram, who in fact may have been a tribal memory and not a historical person, a composite figure of a number of individuals who began to come to this realization within history, we see a change now occurring within the practice of Canaanite religion. And what? And Chronologically, no more nine-year-old little boys buried. So it seems to me pretty reasonable that God may work that way uh, on our habits, on our manners, morals, and customs. And that may be a better way to understand that. 
And so the thing to emphasize with Abram or Abraham and with how Paul describes it is the faithfulness of our faithfulness, our trust, and our ability to fulfill our responsibilities in the midst of the challenges and the opportunities that we face. That may be one of the ways we understand how God acts in human history. We read today in the gospel from the story of Nicodemus. My grandfather's closest friend, Frank Edwards, was from Salt Lake City, Utah. And Frank Edwards lived in Salt Lake and he did not he was not a Mormon. But uh, he told my, I remember I was, uh, when I was a kid, about 12, he took me, my grandfather and Frank Edwards took me and his grandson to a lake in Salt Lake, near, in, in Utah, to fish. And it was called Fish Lake. <laughs> 8,700 feet high, you know. They're out there in this boat, you know. Well, anyway. So we're sitting around in the lodge, and Frank Edwards says to my grandfather, you know, years ago before I moved to California, to San Mateo, I was at my house in Salt Lake, and two Mormon missionaries came to see me. They were not kid, you know, the kid missionaries. They were other adult missionaries my age. And this guy came in, and two of them, and they sat in the living room, and one of them did all the talking. And he was going on and on and on about why he needed to be a Mormon and, you know, Moroni and all the stuff. And this other guy hadn't said a word. He just sat there with his hands in his lap until at one point there was a pause in the conversation. And he pointed at Frank Edwards and said, What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? <laughs> Frank said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any more to say about that story other than looking. <laughs> because it veers off into a certain species of profanity that we just can't get. <laughs> In any case, uh, you know, uh, this is a quite a story. So I'm going to talk about Nicodemus in another way, and it is important what Jesus said to uh, Nicodemus, and it doesn't have anything to do with the angel Moroni or the Book of Mormon or whatever it is. Here's the thing. Nicodemus comes to see Jesus, and he comes in the night. And in John's Gospel, the whole theme, one of them in John's Gospel that keeps going through it, is the darkness, we move from the darkness to the light, that God's illuminative processes are at work in our hearts, inside of us, and also in our community reflection and being together as a people. And how we understand God's purposes is this process of illumination. So Nicodemus, who is a prominent Pharisee, comes to Jesus in the night, and he wishes to be illuminated about what Jesus, why, how Jesus can do this, he believes, of course, that he has to be from God because all of the things that he's done simply could not be done if he was not a person of God in some way. So he wants to know. And Jesus tells him 
that uh, it, you, you need to be born from above. Um, you know, the issue of born again looms large in a lot of religious traditions in Christianity, certainly in this country, because we have all this denominationalism here. So the idea of being born again is a very important thing. In the Greek text, in this section, Jesus uses the word anothen, or, or John does. It means to be born from above. And in the NRSV, uh, Nicodemus doesn't hear him, and he doesn't say that in, this, in the text now, but in the former text. It said, how could you be born again? You know, go through the birthing process again. And Jesus said, no, you need to be born from above. You need to begin to see that um, uh, the still small voice that you know is not your own comes from God. And God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you is the process by which you understand it. And in this case, he is speaking about baptism by water and the Spirit. And so God's grace in some ways operates through the power of the Spirit. Uh, Father Thomas Keating, I look, there's a great book, two books I'll tell you about. I do mention them a number of times. One of the books that I use all the time from Father Keating, I use it to, when I think and reflect about things, is The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy as Spiritual Experience. And the other one is Open Heart, Open Mind, uh, The Contemplative Dimension of the Gospel. And in that book he says, Grace is the presence and action of Christ at every moment in our lives. The sacraments are ritual actions in which Christ is present in a special manner, confirming and sustaining the major commitments of our Christian lives. And, you know, that's the way regularly, uh, week to week, you appropriate this. Because if it's just up to you thinking and feeling about whether or not you have God's grace present to you, it's not going to work too well. For, for most people, it doesn't. They're not just tuned in on a, on a wavelength all the time about this. There are some people who have a spiritual gift, you know. They can just go to God. I've, I've, I've met people like this. The dean of my seminary years ago said, you're going to meet people in your ministry whose spiritual life is far advanced from your own way. And you should not take that as a slight or in any way a problem for your ego but learn from that and see what it is that you understand. And I've met and talked with people who, for some reason, in the contemplative way, can just go connect to God. I don't know how they do it, but they do. So it's something that is uh, not, not something that all of us can do very easily. Most people cannot. Some can. So we know what can happen, but we don't always get there. And so it's important to see that the grace of God is what assists us so when you come to the Eucharist and receive it Sunday to Sunday, you are connecting directly with God's grace. That's what the tradition of the church says. And in our baptism, we are grafted onto the body of Christ and reborn. We are reborn in the sense that we now become what we already are. So Jesus is giving Nicodemus some good advice 
But before it gets truly appropriated, we come into this issue uh, of the cross. And Jesus says some things about that. Uh, he gives us, by the way, in this section of John's gospel is what? The gospel in a nutshell. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that all that believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus says this to Nicodemus. But then he says something about the cross. He never really mentions it. But he said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Remember, John's Gospel is written after Jesus was crucified. So we're talking about an event that has already occurred, and this is the word to the Johannine community and the people now grappling with the pastoral situation on the ground. So he's pointing to uh, the importance of the cross. And here's why I want to talk about this. Uh, this is a wonderful passage because it says a number of things about how Christians have understood the cross over time. The story from Numbers about the, Moses lifting the serpent up has to do with the wandering in the wilderness and the people, as they were wandering, were being bitten by what is described as fiery serpents. And God says, hold the serpent up on, you know, staff and tell the people to look at the serpent. No doubt what's buried in this is some religious cult that they ran into in their wanderings for 40 years, the syncretistic aspect of you know people getting influenced by outside religions and them coming together like this. So while we're always talking about the one God and no idols and everything, we have stuff come up in the course of the Pentateuch where we have an idea that, well, put this thing on a thing and they can look at it. Well, they look at it and they're healed. They're healed from the bites. And by the time we get to the writing of John's Gospel, the cross becomes some sort of a healing sign. What a thing to think about. You know, there's something in Christianity called the doctrine of the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement is what a theory about what, why the cross and what happened when Jesus was crucified and why it's so important and why it's so central. Thing is, there are a whole lot of theories. And my own feeling about it is agree, I agree with Alan Richardson who wrote a book in the 1930s said if the, if, the theory, if the doctrine of the atonement is a theory then each one of us is free to make up our own theory of the doctrine of the atonement. The one that's flying high in April these days and has been for a long time in certain circles is known as the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. It's the great favorite of the evangelicals. Penal substitution. Somebody had to pay. And Jesus is the one who paid for you and me. Now today we get another theory of the atonement in John's Gospel. Have any of you heard of Peter Abelard? Remember the play, Hello Abelard and Heloise? Well, he came up with a theory of the atonement called the exemplarist theory. 
that somehow the cross, uh, Jesus dying on the cross, is a moral example for us. That it is, a t it is the most radical type of self-giving. It is the affirmation to the Christian community that God dies for us and shows us that he will die for you even if you are his enemy. He dies for everybody. And so looking at the cross has a positive healing effect. Can you imagine that? It has an, a, a lot of diff, there's a lot of difficulties with this intellectually, but as a devotional device, it is very powerful. And that is why people look at the cross. Not this kind, which is one of my favorites, Christus Rex, Percy Dearmer's favorite, but the one that's over the altar here, a, a, real, a realistic looking one. That's the one he means when he speaks about the, the exemplarist theory of this. So that somehow you and I have an idea of uh, its power. Now the only thing I can say to you about that is again, anecdotally as a pastor, I've had people tell me that they have been influenced by this theory even if they don't know the name for it. And that it has had for them some kind of transformative power. And so Jesus is speaking about that today, that this is an act of love. I'm not asking you to believe that. I'm saying that this is one of the ways that we've talked about it in Christian history. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to the end that believe him. All that believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he adds, of course... Finally, that God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The same word that is used for to save in the New Testament and in the Hebrew Bible is the same word that's used to, for to heal. So salvation has something to do with uh, the healing power of God at work. For, this, for the reader of this section, most of these people would say, I guess that means that when I suffer, that when I've gone through very difficult periods, or in the difficult period that I find myself now, that God is always with me. And God is with me and united to my suffering. And that that presence can and does, for many, have healing power. And so what he said to Nicodemus is that if you're born by water in the Holy Spirit, you begin to understand this God coming from within to enlighten and strengthen you as a means to do this, even in the midst of great suffering and difficulty. So this, this week... Uh, Give thanks for the cross of Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and a foolishness to the Gentiles. Amen.